Section 37 of Micrographia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Micrographia by Robert Hooke. Section 37. Observation 32. Of the figure of several sorts of hair and of the texture of the skin. Viewing some of the hairs of my head with a very good microscope, I took notice of these particulars. 1. That they were, for the most part, cylindrical, some of them were somewhat prismatical, but generally they were very near round, such as are represented in the second figure of the fifth scheme by the cylinders E, 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 nor could I find any that had sharp angles. 2. That that part which was next the top was bigger than that which was nearer the root. 3. That they were all along from end to end transparent, though not very clear, then end next the root appearing like a black transparent piece of horn, the end next the top more brown, somewhat like transparent horn. 4. That the root of the hairs were pretty smooth, tapering inwards, almost like a parsnip, nor could I find that it had any filaments or any other vessels, such as the fibers of plants. 5. That the top, when split, which is common in long hair, appeared like the end of the stick, beaten till it be all filtered, there being not only two splinters, but sometimes half a score and more. 6. That they were all, as far as I was able to find, solid cylindrical bodies, not pervious like a cane or bulrush, nor could I find that they had any pith or distinction of rind, or the like, such as I had observed in horse hairs, the bristles of a cat, the Indian deer's hair, etc. Observations on several other sorts of hair. For the bristles of a hog, I found them to be first a hard, transparent, horny substance, without the least appearance of pores or holes in it, and this I tried with the greatest care I was able, cutting many of them with a very sharp razor, so that they appeared, even in the glass, to have a pretty smooth surface, but somewhat waved by the saving to and fro of the razor, as is visible in the end of the prismatical body A of the same figure and then making trials with causing the light to be cast on them all the various ways I could think of, that was likely to make the pores appear, if there had been any, I was not able to discover any. Next, the figure of the bristles was very various, neither perfectly round, nor sharp-edged, but prismatical, with diverse sides and round angles, as appears in the figure A, the bending of them in any part where they before appeared clear would all flow them and make them look white. The mustachios of a cat, part of one of which is represented by the short cylinder B of the same figure, seem to have, all of them that I observed, a large pith in the middle, like the pith of an elder whose texture was so close that I was not able to discover the least sign of pores and those parts which seemed to be pores, as they appeared in one position to the light, in another I could find a manifest reflection to be cast from them. This I instance in, 
to hint that it is not safe to conclude anything to be positively this or that, though it appear never so plain and likely when looked on with microscope in one posture, before the same be examined by placing it in several other positions. And this I take to be the reason why many have believed and asserted the hairs of a man's head to be hollow, and like so many small pipes perforated from end to end. Now, though I grant that by an analogy one may suppose them so, and from the Polonian disease one may believe them such, yet I think we have not the least encouragement to either from the microscope, much less positively to assert them such. And perhaps the very essence of the plica polonica may be the hairs growing hollow and of an unnatural constitution. And as for the analogy, though I am apt enough to think that the hairs of several animals may be perforated somewhat like a cane, or at least have a kind of pith in them, first, because they seem as it were a kind of vegetable growing on an animal, which growing, they say, remains a long while after the animal is dead, and therefore should, like other vegetables, have a pith, and secondly, because horns and feathers and porcupines' quills and cats' bristles and the long hairs of horses, which come very near the nature of a man's hair, seem all of them to have a kind of pith, and some of them to be porous, yet I think it not, in the cases where we have such helps for the sense as the microscope affords, safe, concluding or building on more than we sensibly know. Since we may, by examining, find that nature does in the make of the same kind of substance, often vary her method in framing of it. Instances enough to confirm this we may find in the horns of several creatures, as what a vast difference is there between the horns of an ox and those of some sorts of stags as to their shape, and even in the hairs of several creatures we find a vast difference, as the hair of a man's head seems, as I said before, long, cylindrical, and sometimes a little prismatical, solid or impervious and very small, the hair of an Indian deer, a part of the middle of which is described in the third figure of the fifth scheme, marked with F, is bigger in compass through all the middle of it than the bristle of an hog, but the end of it is smaller than the hair of any kind of animal, as may be seen by the figure G. The whole belly of it, which is about two or three inches long, looks to the eye like a thread of coarse canvas that has been newly unrest it being all waved or bended to and fro, much after that manner, but through the microscope it appears all perforated from side to side and spongy, like a small kind of spongy coral, which is often found upon the English shores. But though I cut it transversely, I could not perceive that it had any pores that ran the long way of the hair. The long hairs of horses, C, C, and D, seem cylindrical and somewhat pithy. The bristles of a cat, B, are conical and pithy. The quills of porcupines and hedgehogs, being cut transversely, have a whitish pith in the manner of a star or spar rowel. Pig's hair, A, is somewhat triagonal and seems to have neither pith nor pore. 
and other kinds of hair have quite a differing structure and form, and therefore I think it no way agreeable to a true natural historian to pretend to be so sharp-sighted as to see what a preconceived hypothesis tells them should be there, where another man, though perhaps as seeing, but not forestalled, can discover no such matter. But to proceed, I observed several kind of hairs that had been dyed, and found them to be a kind of horny cylinder, being of much about the transparency of a pretty clear piece of ox-horn. These appeared quite throughout tinged with the colours they exhibited and it is likely that those hairs being boiled or steeped in those very hot tinged liquors in the dye-fat, and the substance of the hair being much like that of an ox-horn, the penetrant liquor does so far mollify and soften the substance, that it sinks into the very centre of it, and so the tinged parts come to be mixed and united with the very body of the hair, and do not, as some have thought, only stick on upon the outward surface. And this, the boiling of horn will make more probable, for we shall find by that action that the water will insinuate itself to a pretty depth within the surface of it, especially if this penetrancy of the water be much helped by the salts that are usually mixed with dyeing liquors. Now, whereas silk may be dyed or tinged into all kind of colours without boiling or dipping into hot liquors, I guess the reason to be twofold. First, because the filaments, or small cylinders of silk, are abundantly smaller and finer, and so have a much less depth to be penetrated than most kind of hairs, and next, because the substance or matter of silk is much more like a glue than the substance of hair is, and that I have reason to suppose, first, because when it is spun or drawn out of the worm, it is a perfect gluttonous substance, and very easily sticks and cleaves to any adjacent body, as I have several times observed, both in silkworms and spiders. Next, because that I find that water does easily dissolve and mollify the substance again, which is evident from their manner of ordering those bottoms or pods of the silkworm before they are able to unwind them. It is no great wonder, therefore, if those dyes or tinged liquors do very quickly mollify and tinge the surfaces of so small and so gluttonous a body. And we need not wonder that the colours appear so lovely in the one and so dull in the other if we view but the tinged cylinders of both kinds with a good microscope. For various the substance of hair at best is but a dirty duskish white, somewhat transparent. The filaments of silk have a most lovely transparency and clearness, the difference between those two being not much less than that between a piece of horn and a piece of crystal the one yielding a bright and vivid reflection from the concave side of the cylinder, that is, from the concave surface of the air, that encompasses the back part of the cylinder, the other yielding a dull and perturbed reflection from the several heterogeneous parts that compose it. And this difference will be manifest enough to the eye if you get a couple of small cylinders, the smaller of crystal glass 
the other of horn, and then, varnishing them over very thinly with some transparent color, which will represent to the naked eye much the same kind of object which is represented to it from the filaments of silk and hair by the help of the microscope. Now, since the threads of silk and serge are made up of a great number of these filaments, we may henceforth cease to wonder at the difference. From much the same reason proceeds the vivid and lovely colors of feathers, wherein they very far exceed the natural as well as artificial colors of hair, of which I shall say more in its proper place. The tecuments, indeed, of creatures are all of them adapted to the peculiar use and convenience of that animal which they inwrap, and very much also for the ornament and beauty of it, as will be most evident to any one that shall attentively consider the various kinds of clothings wherewith most creatures are by nature invested and covered. Thus I have observed that the hair or fur of those northern white bears that inhabit the colder regions is exceedingly thick and warm. The like have I observed of the hair of a Greenland deer, which being brought alive to London, I had the opportunity of viewing. Its hair was so exceeding thick, long and soft, that I could hardly with my hand grasp or take hold of his skin, and it seemed so exceeding warm, as I have never met with any before. And as for the ornamentative use of them, it is most evident in a multitude of creatures, not only for color, as the leopards, cats, reindeer, etc., but for the shape, as in horses' manes, cats' beards, and several other of the greater sort of terrestrial animals, but is much more conspicuous in the vestments of fishes, birds, insects, of which I shall by and by give some instances. As for the skin, the microscope discovers as great a difference between the texture of those several kinds of animals as it does between their hairs. But all that I have yet taken notice of, when tanned or dressed, are of a spongy nature, and seem to be constituted of an infinite company of small, long fibres or hairs, which look not unlike a heap of tow or oakum, every of which fibres seem to have been some part of a muscle, and probably, whilst the animal was alive, might have its distinct function, and serve for the contraction and relaxation of the skin, and for the stretching and shrinking of it this or that way. And indeed, without such a kind of texture as this, which is very like that of spunk, it would seem very strange how anybody so strong as the skin of an animal usually is, and so close as it seems, whilst the animal is living, should be able to suffer so great an extension any ways, without at all hurting or dilacerating any part of it. But since we are informed by the microscope that it consists of a great many small filaments which are implicated or entangled, one within another, almost no otherwise than the hairs in a lock of wool, or the flakes in a heap of tow, though not altogether so loose, but the filaments are here and there twisted, as it were, or interwoven, and here and there they join and unite with one another, so as indeed the whole skin seems to be but one piece, we need not much wonder. 
and though these fibers appear not through a microscope exactly jointed or contexted as in sponge yet as i formerly hinted i am apt to think that could we find some way of discovering the texture of it whilst it invests the living animal or had some very easy way of separating the pulp or intercurrent juices such as in all probability fill those interstitia without dilacerating bruising or otherwise spoiling the texture of it as it seems to be very much by the ways of tanning and dressing now used we might discover a much more curious texture than i have hitherto been able to find perhaps somewhat like that of sponges that of chamois leather is indeed very much like that of spunk have only that the filaments seem nothing near so even and round nor altogether so small nor has it so curious joints as spunk has some of which i have lately discovered like those of a sponge and perhaps all these three bodies may be of the same kind of substance though two of them indeed are commonly accounted vegetable which whether they be so or no i shall not now dispute but this seems common to all three that they undergo a tanning or dressing whereby the interspersed juices are wasted and washed away before the texture of them can be discovered what their way is of dressing or curing sponges i confess i cannot learn but the way of dressing spunk is by boiling it a good while in the strong lixivium and then beating it very well and the manner of dressing leather is sufficiently known it were indeed extremely desirable if such a way could be found whereby the parenchyma or flesh of the muscles and several other parts of the body might be washed or wafted clean away without vitiating the form of the fibrous parts or vessels of it for hereby the texture of those parts by the help of a good microscope might be most accurately found but to digress no further we may from this discovery of the microscope plainly enough understand how the skin though it looks so close as it does comes to give a passage to so vast a quantity of excrementitious substances as the diligent sanctorius has excellently observed it to do in his medicina statica for it seems very probable from the texture after dressing that there are an infinite of pores that every way pierce it and that those pores are only filled with some kind of juice or some very pulpy soft substance and thereby the steams may almost as easily find a passage through such a fluid vehicle as the vaporous bubbles which are generated at the bottom of kettle of hot water do find a passage through that fluid medium into the ambient air nor is the skin of animals only thus pervious but even those of vegetables also seem to be the same for otherwise i cannot conceive why if two sprigs of rosemary for instance be taken as exactly alike in all particulars as can be and the one be set with the bottom in a glass of water and the other be set just without the glass but in the air only though we stop the lower end of that in the air very carefully with wax yet shall it presently almost wither whereas the other that seems to have a supply from the subjacent water by its small pipes 
or microscopical pores, preserves its greenness for many days, and sometimes weeks. Now this to me seems not likely to proceed from any other cause than the ovulation of the juice through the skin, for by the wax all those other pores of the stem are very firmly and closely stopped up, and from the more or less porousness of the skins or rinds of vegetables may, perhaps, be somewhat of the reason given why they keep longer green or sooner wither. For we may observe, by the bladdering and craking of the leaves of bays, holly, laurel, etc., that their skins are very close, and do not suffer so free a passage through them, of the included juices. But of this, and of the experiment of the rosemary, I shall elsewhere more fully consider, seeming to me an extreme luciferous experiment, such as seems indeed very plainly to prove that schematism, or structure of vegetables altogether mechanical, and as necessary, that, water and warmth being applied to the bottom of the sprig of a plant, some of it should be carried upwards into the stem, and thence distributed into the leaves, as that the water of the Thames, covering the bottom of the mills at the bridge-foot of London, and by the ebbing and flowing of it, passing strongly by them, should have some part of it conveyed to the cisterns above, and thence into the several houses and cisterns up and down the city. End of section 37